What's the news that we're thinking about as our drafts approach? I'll ask Ray Murphy about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 24th. It's show number eight of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davich, your host, and we do have another great Friday news and notes edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and analyst at BaseballHQ.com, discussing injury news with Reese Hoskins, Risel Iglesias, Mitch Haniger, and others. We'll talk about managing the Grayson Rodriguez conundrum, the St. Louis leadoff situation, spring training starting pitcher wrap-ups, including a deep opportunity in Cleveland, and the Baseball HQ Straight Draft Guide now in its 19th year. It's another big Friday news and notes edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Baseball HQ Straight Draft Guide is out. We're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, it's time for a look at what's going on in baseball and fantasy baseball with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Glad to be here, PD. March is almost over. It's getting exciting. We should tell our listeners that we're making a slight adjustment in how we're doing these uh, Friday News and Notes shows. It's going to be a little less focused on the news and a little more focused on analysis of rosters and what have you based on what's going on at BaseballHQ.com because, as you pointed out when we were discussing this, there's no shortage of of news on all kinds of other podcasts and sites, including BaseballHQ.com itself, of course, through the Playing Time Today feature. So um, we're going to go a little bit deeper and go a little bit broader, I think, and uh, I'm hoping that our listeners realize that this is uh, probably a better way to go about it. It's Richer information, I guess, is a good way to put it, and I like that. But we will start off with a bit of news. Ray, it's been a a weird spring for oddball injuries, and this week another one. Philadelphia first baseman Reese Hoskins was fielding a ball and just collapsed. And it turned out he's torn his ACL, he's going to require surgery, and he'll be out probably for the entire year. If you're like me, a fantasy manager who has Hoskins on a roster, what are we to do? Yeah, yeah, there are not. Reese Hoskins level equivalents available probably either in your fantasy waiver wire or directly to the Phillies, right? So (laughs) both sides are in a bind. As far as what the Phillies are going to do, they've got a couple of different options. There's a lot of talk about them moving uh, current third baseman Alec Baum over to first base and freeing up third base for Edmundo Sosa. Uh, There's also Derek Hall, who was competing for the DH at bats in Bryce Harper's absence. He can, uh, he's a first baseman by trade and can jump out to first base. And this also gives him some staying power even beyond Harper's return. So that's uh, probably where most of the first base playing time goes as far as the roster spot, uh, probably a, YouTube or utility type like uh, Josh Harrison or Cody Clemens or even Scott Kingery could be the uh, the extra bat who actually directly sticks on the roster there. But uh, now we're getting to the point of uh, talking about players without much fantasy utility at all. 
including, I think, Edmundo Sosa. I don't really know much about him. What do we know about him as a fantasy performer? Yeah, he was picked up, I think, at the trade deadline last year by the Phillies, came over from the Cardinals uh, as sort of infield depth. Uh, he's got you know basically a full season of at-bats in the major leagues, about 500 plate appearances with a 253, 321, 378 slash line, which uh, quick math says is an OPS right around 700, which is not super exciting. Uh, he does run. He stole 37 bases in the minors over eight years, so there's you know more than a trickle of stolen bases there. Um, but a contact hitter with a ground ball tilt, um, likely to hit at the bottom of the order. He has had a good spring, so there's a chance he's unlocking some skills there. But uh, as I said at the top, a downgrade from Hoskins for sure. And before you get too excited, I think about Sosa's stolen base potential. He's been caught 23 times in the big leagues to offset those uh, 37 bags that he's managed. So not a really terrific um not a terrific uh, stolen base percentage. Maybe that'll improve a little bit with the bases. Uh, I guess we don't know. Uh, Atlanta put Razel Iglesias, their closer, on the IL. They say he's not going to throw for seven days. He's got inflammation in his pitching shoulder. The scuttlebutt says the saves will go to some combination of Joe Jimenez, uh, late of Detroit, and A.J. Minter, who's the left-hander. How do you think fantasy managers should play this situation as opening day looms? I think I can actually talk about how I how I myself am going to play it since I was the, uh, as it turns out, the dope who drafted Iglesias in the third round of my NF- NFBC draft last weekend. So, you know, <laughs> this, yeah, one, uh, <laughs> this one cuts close to my heart. Uh, the, you know, if there's, you know, I, I don't want to be the wish caster who assumes the news can't be bad because it affects my team. Right. But the, uh, the, the, the comments from the Braves and Iglesias seem to suggest that this is, relatively minor Iglesias has said he hopes it's a minimum 15 day IL stint and they're shutting him down for seven days, but hoping they kind of nip this in the bud as for what happens with the Braves. You mentioned both Jimenez and Minter and how they come from the opposite sides of the plate. And that seems to suggest uh, that Snitker is going to have opportunities to play matchups or, you know, sequence these guys differently from night to night. Um, he has not tipped his hand otherwise. And if we're talking about a couple of weeks, there might be a couple of saves for either one of them, but that might be about it until Iglesias comes back. So don't get me wrong. Saves are scarce. And if you can snag one of these guys and pick up two or three saves in the first two or three weeks, that's helpful. But uh, in terms of impact so far, this does not sound like it's anything on the order of say a Hoskins situation. No, for sure. And and I thought that one of the things we should counsel people is don't overreact to this story and go and spend, you know, 150 units on Jimenez and or AJ Minter, because I think the the probabilities lie towards Iglesias probably coming back within the first couple of weeks of the season and resuming his job. Shoulder inflammation is not nothing, but it's also not, you know, an elbow problem. And it seems like, uh, in a lot of instances, inflammation can be solved by a bit of uh, anti-inflammatory medication and rest. And uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Razel Iglesias back uh, closing games by mid-April. And I'm certainly not going to bet against him by placing a lot of uh, fab money on uh, the alternatives. Uh, In San Francisco, 
hey, here's news. Mitch Hanniger's on the IL to start the season, as is outfielder Austin Slater, which creates some opportunities, it appears, in the outfield out there. A couple of guys, Blake Sable and Bryce Johnson, look like they'll have larger roles to start the year. Uh, Jake Crumpler was on this story for playing time today at Baseball HQ. And the interesting thing here for me, Ray, is that Sable could really provide a fantasy team with some sneaky help because he's catcher eligible. How are you looking at this whole San Francisco outfield situation? Yeah, there are a few different moving parts here. Uh, In terms of the outfield directly, the top options out there are now Mike Yastrzemski, Jock Peterson, Michael Conforto. Um, Those guys are lined up to be spread across the, the probably all three outfield spots and the DH spot, the thing that you realize when you look at all of those is those are all left-handed batters. And the Giants, you know, the way they like to use their bench bats and get the platoon advantages as much as they can are not going to want to run those lefty outfielders out there every day. Uh, Roster constraints kind of suggest that they might have they might have to use one of them, but that's where guys like Sable and Bryce Johnson come in. Uh, Sable in particular, uh, because he's kind of a new name, this year, he was a rule five pick um, who had already, even before the Hanniger injury, had been turning some heads in camp and kind of sticking a claim to sticking on the roster as a uh, bench slash utility bat. There are, of course, other uh, injuries going on in San Francisco, too, including third base being in a little bit of a state of flux, too. So uh, say this will apparently get Sable on the roster to start the season and with a shot at some regular playing time uh, to at least stick a claim for sticking around when Hanniger and Austin Slater make it back uh, a few weeks down the road. Um, If Sable carries over his uh, 1.194 was his OPS in the spring. The last time I saw Um, if he carries that over, he will have no trouble sticking of course, but uh, chances are regular season pitching will, you know, put a, tamp down that number at least a little bit. I'd guess more than a little bit, but how high does his OPS have to be? It doesn't have to be 1194 for him to be a useful second catcher. You'd probably take him at 700. Yeah. the It seems like the Giants targeted him in the rule five draft, you know, with exactly this use case in mind that, you know, he's catcher eligible. They can move him around to the outfield spots. Um, and like I said, the Giants, the way they want to get playing time for everybody on their roster, everybody who's there has a specific purpose. Um, I think um, Johnson, Bryce Johnson would be the guy who got sent off the roster when Hanniger comes back and there is a path for Sable to stick around all year, you know, on the roster. One can expect it will be in a uh, mostly part-time role, but there's a, uh, there, there's a path to sticking for him for sure. And a path to value if he does hit and get some, reps at catcher, then, you know, the catcher situation in most leagues is dire enough, especially in only leagues that Sable could be an interesting proposition compared to some of the other alternatives there are when you start digging around in the end game, trying to find a catcher. Ray, one of the toughest calls that fantasy managers have to make every season is with heralded young pitchers, top prospects who are often overpriced or overdrafted because of pure speculation. And a case in point this season has been Grayson Rodriguez of Baltimore. He's gone in the top 200 in NFBC drafts in March, 
despite a pretty poor spring, actually. And Chris Olson covers the American League East in our Playing Time Tomorrow columns at BaseballHQ.com, roster forecasting division by division. He looked at Grayson Rodriguez, and what did he come up with? Yeah, Chris does a great job of sort of dialing into <coughs> the issues that are looming for each team, in uh, which is sort of the charge for playing time tomorrow to try to sort of get out in front of some situ- situations and talk about them before they uh, be- become pressing on the roster or before an injury strikes or before somebody loses their job, right? And in, in with Rodriguez, what we really have is something of a tension between his prospect pedigree, the scouting takes versus what he's actually doing on the mound in the spring, right? And of course, the sample sizes are tiny, but it's enough for a guy like Rodriguez who's trying to establish himself in the rotation uh, that he's, you know, his performance is creating some uncertainty, shall we say, Um, especially because his struggles seem to be coming the second time through the lineup in each of his last couple of starts uh, in total for the spring in 11 innings, he's now given up seven runs, fine, whatever, but on 13 hits and seven walks. Um, so 20 base runners on 11 innings is problematic. Although he does have 14 strikeouts, which says that the stuff is still there, but uh, you know, let's not forget there are also health concerns with Rodriguez. He only got, he only logged about 75 minor early innings last year, um, I think it was a lat injury that uh, had him shut down for a couple of months. So, you know, in terms of projecting his innings, you know, we've been fairly cautious about that too. You know, we've got him, I think, somewhere in the range of 120 for the season. Uh, and, you know, anytime you get to that number, there's the thought that it's kind of tough to spread out 120 innings across a big league rotation. If he's going to be in the rotation all year, you, you kind of can't do that he's going to need a triple a vacation or an il stint or something like that so when he's ineffective in the beginning of the season it raises the question of would they send him out and just kind of get that you know let him take the time in the minors to sort of get himself straight before they bring him back up but on the flip side if they're not worried about these small sample spring results then there's really no reason to sort of waste his innings in triple a at this point either so um and of course rodriguez if he pitches up to his prospect pedigree is way better than the alternatives the orioles have in that rotation too yeah they have guys that i would call playable but not really spectacular in the way that grayson rodriguez has the potential to be you're looking at guys like kyle gibson he's having a pretty good spring Uh, left-hander cole irvin has held his own Uh, not a lot of strikeouts of course but uh you know good control a workman-like type of guy and i've seen quite a bit of uh tout interest in the run-up to drafts for right-hander kyle bradish what's the angle with kyle bradish yeah, Chris di- dialed into this in his um, piece as well, that Bradish uh, has caught some attention after uh, tinkering with his arsenal in the offseason, um, and it seems to be working in the spring. Uh, he's got nine innings, at least in big league games, with uh, only four hits and two run, run allowed and uh, two walks to 12 strikeouts, which is pretty promising and also pretty different from the previous version of Kyle Bradish. So there's some suggestion that uh, we may need to recalibrate our expectations there. Um, Behind Bradish, there's also more guys that I would 
I think workmanlike is a good description. I'll continue to put them under that category, right? There's uh, Dean Kramer, uh, who seems like he has a rotation spot showed up, sewn up at this point with a uh, decent spring. Um, he's had a little bit of a problem with the long ball, but the overall results have been good. And after that, they uh, the, their 40-man roster includes guys like Spencer Watkins, Tyler Wells, Austin Voth, none of whom are in any way exciting, but if they – you know, the, those are probably the kind of guys that you're that will be called upon to to gobble up some of those innings that at some point Rodriguez will not be able to take because of the expected innings limit on him. So, how would you advise fantasy managers to play the Rodriguez situation? Yeah, it's tough. Um, I know. Brent and I picked him in a draft this week um, because Brent is still very high on him and not put off by the by the spring but i think the the one thing we know for sure uh even if we're willing to discount that spring performance is that it's going to be less than a full season right that it's going to be the 120 innings or whatever so the way i've been building sort of my pitching staffs all all offseason has been trying to get the 160 plus inning guys with skill as my top couple of starters in a mixed league or, you know, at least get a couple of those in an only league as well. And then as you get into the middle of your staff, you can speculate a little bit more on guys who have really good skills, but are likely to be innings limited. And that could be their prospects along the lines of Rodriguez, or you can go into, you know, the category of veteran starters who just never seem to get to that level. And I think the ADPs bear this out. Rodriguez is not that far separated from the likes of Clayton Kershaw, Blake Snell, Chris Sale. Those guys are, you know, established pitchers, not, not like the prospect Rodriguez, but, you know, similar in the category in that they get categorized as have having really good skills and likely to be really good starting pitchers, just where, you know, we're going to, we're very confident we're going to get less than a full season out of them. Chris Olson also discusses Bobby Dahlbeck of Boston, uh, the Yankees outfield, Tampa's bench spots, and a potential platoon situation for Dalton Varsho in Toronto, which is interesting. Uh, staying with the playing time tomorrow column, uh, Dan Marcus covers the National League Central, and in his latest piece, he looks at St. Louis and focuses on something that should be of huge interest to fantasy managers, what he calls an intriguing battle for the leadoff slot in the Cardinals. What's the latest on that front? Yeah, this was a good spot by uh, by Dan. It, it actually opened my eyes a little bit to the situation. I was aware that uh, Tommy Edmond, who spent most of the last season as a leadoff hitter, he didn't exactly lose that job at the end of last season, but they at least started moving him down in the lineup uh, versus left-handed pitchers um, <clears throat> because he was uh, not – his numbers were – his platoon splits were not – indicating that he deserved to be up there in the um, when, when he didn't have the platoon advantage. But uh, Dan seems to think that this is more than just a platoon situation here, that Lars Newtbar might be jumping up and battling him for battling Edmund for the leadoff spot, you know, on a daily basis, not just on the bad side of the platoon basis. And the reason why isn't hard to spot Edmund overall only had a 318 on base percentage, um, over last year and leading off, it was even worse than that. It was 299, which is clearly just not good enough for a leadoff hitter. Um, he has the wheels with a 122 
speed and a 86 percentile sprint speed uh, that you like to have to you know set the table, so to speak. Uh, but the plate discipline just isn't there. The walk rate, six uh, percent for his career, is not driving that on base percentage enough. And as this Cards lineup has changed, and guys like Newt Bar and you know so all these young kids have come up that they've created created some opportunities to sort of reshuffle this lineup. Newt Bar hit toward the bottom of that lineup last year, um, but did was one of those guys who was stealing some of those plate appearances toward the top at the end of the season. Um, and you know, in a small sample, like eighty-seven plate appearances, he had a three forty-five on base percentage leading off, which is a lot better than Edmonds 299. So you can see why they're thinking about this. Um, and Newt Bar, you know, I, we saw a lot of him in the World Baseball Classic um, playing for Japan, and he had a uh, he, he had a 500 OBP there. So I'm sure the Cardinals were watching that and thinking, hey, you know, that works pretty well. We should try that here. <laughs> and talking of plate discipline, I think Edmund was around the 40th percentile in chase rate and Newt Bar the 92nd percentile. So he seems to have a lot better plate discipline. You mentioned that he had the, uh, the big 345 on base percentage. That was a 16% walk rate was part of that. So St. Louis is a pretty analytical team and it seems like when this kind of evidence plus whatever they're getting that we don't see from their proprietary sort of uh, data and uh, the analysis that they do with it. How much of a fantasy benefit would Newt Bar see if he did lead off consistently? You know, there's two aspects of it. There's the benefit for Newt Bar and, of course, the corresponding penalty for Edmund, right? Newt Bar's benefit would probably be in terms of just overall plate appearances and counting stats. The rule of thumb is what? It's 15 or 20 plate appearances per batting order spot, right? Um, because one game out of every nine sort of ends with you in the on-deck circle is kind of the way it goes. Um, and so so for Newbar, if you know, given he was hitting in the bottom third last year, you know, and batting ninth quite a bit, actually, you, there, you know, there could be 150, 160 additional plate appearances over the course of a full season. He probably won't play absolutely every day, but if he's an 80% player, he'd get 80% of that. With Edmund, the, the question you got to ask, not just does he have that corresponding loss in plate appearances if he gets dropped down the lineup, but uh, there, being at the bottom of the order may impact his ability to rack up stolen bases too. Uh, you know, if he was if he were to bat eighth or ninth, that's not the death for stolen bases anymore the way it was a couple of years ago, pre-DH, when that meant you were batting eighth and on first base in front of the pitcher, and they want the pitcher to bunt, and you never get to run and all that stuff. That's not a problem as much anymore. But, uh, you know, the loss of plate appearances and uh, maybe some fewer running opportunities anyway would be a significant hit to uh, Edmonds' fantasy profile. Well, whoever gets to lead off certainly is in line for some big runs scored, and runs scored is kind of the redheaded stepchild in a lot of uh, fantasy managers' calculations. We just don't pay enough attention to it. A lot of people believe, and gosh, that lineup—you got, you know—if you're batting uh, lead off, and uh, just behind you are Goldschmidt, Arenado, Contreras, guys like that, all of a sudden uh, your run scoring potential looks pretty good. I've also seen Newt Bar, by the way, listed as the likely second hitter for St. Louis against right-handers, which would be almost as good, maybe even give him a, a few more RBI opportunities. Uh, 
BaseballHQ.com also runs skills columns, starting pitchers, relief pitchers, and hitters. And our starting pitching expert, Stephen Nickrand, has published spring training wrap-ups for each league looking at the expected rotations. It's very valuable information, especially in deeper leagues where you have to know who a lot of those fifth starters are, and especially in only leagues where it's even more important. And Stephen's notes underneath his estimates of who the rotations will be are worth the price of admission all by themselves. He has a comment on the Miami rotation that the Marlins have a dark horse Cy Young contender, and it isn't Sandy Alcantara. Who caught Stephen's eye? Yeah, these columns are just so good. They're some of my favorite content on the site in the preseason every year. Stephen's got these great charts where he shows our projected stats for every starting pitcher, plus a quick thumbnail on their spring stats. And like you said, he's got some bullets underneath about what catches what's catching his eye uh so in this case he called out um marlin's lefty jesus lazardo uh who reached triple digit innings for the first time in 2022 and then you know not only did he set a high for innings but also finished the season strong with uh, really strong skills in september including a uh you know almost closer worthy 14 percent swing strike rate and uh 31% CSW, just elite stuff. Um, and then that he's got 15 strikeouts against one walk this spring. So he's really, you know, it seems like he's teed up for a really strong season. Stephen also says Miami lefty Trevor Rogers looks like an undervalued rebound candidate after a lost 2022 season. And he has some interesting thoughts on right-hander Edward Cabrera. Yeah, this rotation really is shaping up to just be um, an abundance of great starter options. Rogers looks like he has fixed what blew up his year last year. And Cabrera has won the fifth starter spot this spring and also has legit breakout potential. He misses tons of bats, allows very little hard contact. There have been some control issues in the past, uh, which if he has a downfall is likely to be that. So Stephen also suggests keeping an eye on recently demoted Braxton Garrett, who's going to be, who's sort of the sixth starter in waiting um, and also has, who also has, you know, some interesting skills if he gets the role. And even beyond that on their depth chart is uh right-hander Yuri Perez, who's one of the top starting pitching prospects in the game. So the Marlins have, a lot of places to turn and it seems like a bunch of these guys are primed for uh, career years. It might be uh, very hard to score runs against the Marlins this year. In his American League rotation analysis, Steven said he likes Cleveland right-hander Aaron Savali. Yeah, Savali's another one who closed the season very well last year. Uh, 159 base performance value in the second half uh, and a strong September on top of it. The September maybe a little bit uh, tainted by him getting fat on sort of the dregs of the AL Central. So if there's a caution on Savali, it's that, uh, you know, he's you know, he may be uh, penalized a little bit by the more balanced schedule this year, and he'll get a little less opportunity to get fat on the Tigers, Royals, etc. Um, but this spring in just nine innings in big league camp, uh, everything seems fine. He's got uh, three walks versus 11 strikeouts. So he seems like he is also ready to go. 
159 base performance value in the second half you mentioned. Just to put it into context, 159 sounds like a very high base performance value based on the many years I've been part of Baseball HQ and reading Baseball HQ. How does it 159 scale against uh, what you expect from an average sort of starter? Yeah, you're right. We should contextualize that, and we do that in Baseball Forecaster by using – a scaled version of base performance value that puts everybody the league average, but league average is roughly in, uh, it was in the mid eighties last year, I believe. So, you know, you're talking about twice the, uh, you know, roughly twice as good as league average. And for those who don't remember a base performance value is a combined metric that looks at strikeout rates, walk rates, and so forth, and tries to get it all into one number so that it's a little easier to sort and a little easier to look for when you're looking at the baseball HQ player charts. Uh, perhaps even more interesting in as far as the guardians are concerned is Steven's comment about a, for me, completely unheralded starting pitching prospect. Yeah, this one was a new name for me as well. Um, and I think it kind of relates to, uh, a, earlier an injury earlier in camp where Daniel Espino, who was one of their top pitching prospects uh, came to camp with, uh, I forget if it was a sore shoulder or elbow, but he got shut down and he's sort of on the, you know, very delayed start to the season path. So if you shuffle the depth chart accordingly, one name that, you know, moves a little bit closer to the top is Hunter Gaddis, who uh, was really good between double A AA and triple A last year with uh 158 strikeouts to 41 walks, which is just about a four to one strikeout to walk ratio, which is elite even for uh, the minors. Um, and that all netted out to a ERA about 360, but a really low sub one um, whip in triple A. So, you know, makes sense uh, as long as defense is decent behind you. If you're not walking anybody, your whip numbers should be pretty good um he's a fastball changeup guy um and you know i think what's catching steven's eye is looking at spring training numbers the that double triple a performance last year is carrying over uh 13 innings this spring he's got 17 strikeouts to three walks so he's showing he can you know hold his own in uh grapefruit league action you know he's not starting the year in the rotation uh but he's probably going to be the um guy on speed dial down in now I'm going to forget as I'm saying this where the Columbus, oh, Colum- I was going to say Columbus, Akron, Toledo, one <laughs> yeah. of those, right? <laughs> Scranton, Wilkes-Barre as somewhere in that general yeah. region. Yeah. He's going to be spending some time in some other Midwest city waiting for the, uh, for the, for the phone call to come. Uh, but on, but, but in all seriousness, you know, there's an opportunity for him to make an impact sometime this summer. Um, especially, you know, given the track record the guardians have of developing young pitching uh even that without the huge prospect pedigree so that's this is a name i'll talk away for sure 17 strikeouts to three walks you mentioned in spring that's almost six to one strikeout to walk ratio we call that a command ratio at baseballhq.com and kind of the threshold for acceptability is three strikeouts per nine, maybe 3.5. Now it goes up every year a little bit, but six is uh, really getting the job done for sure. And this is a situation where depending on your league rules, they may, if they allow you to stash guys with limited penalty, then maybe this is somebody you need to be looking at. If not, 
definitely put him on a watch list of some kind, especially at MILB, the minor league baseball site, and see what he's doing down there because uh, it might be the kind of situation where you might be able to get him onto your roster a week before he gets called up based on what's going on in Cleveland, and you might have yourself a very cheap, very useful pitcher that nobody else is going to have heard of probably. Uh, In a playing time today brief, uh, White Sox analyst Rick Green of BaseballHQ.com drew attention to a seemingly speculative hitter who's making a hard push for playing time, but a little bit of a cautionary note as well. Yeah, so he's talking about Oscar Colas, and uh, I've actually gone back and forth with Rick a couple of times uh, this preseason about Colas, kind of just the two of us trying to read the tea leaves and figure out how this job was going to play out. Um because on the one hand, they've given Colas a long look this spring, and you know they obviously signed Ben Intendi, and they have Luis Robert in that outfield. But the third spot is kind of up for grabs. They had the likes of Victor Reyes in camp, and for a while we were kind of hedging and projecting Reyes for about half the job and Colas for a little less than that, thinking that Reyes might get a couple of months to keep the job warm before you know, Colas got a call this summer, that kind of thing. Um, but now it seems like it's going the other way. Um, so we were already interested um, for background. Uh, Colas is a guy who came out of Cuba and uh, since the White Sox signed him, has been kind of fast-tracked. The off, the um, He's been impressive in the minors, hitting uh, 314 with uh, 23 home runs last year across a couple of different levels. Uh, but there was a lot of strikeout. Uh, 36% strikeout rate in AAA, which is kind of what made us think that maybe they wouldn't rush him. They'd uh, send him back to AAA for a couple of months to try to tamp that down a little bit. Um, and he's also not um, not exactly Roberto Clemente in the outfield. Uh, but he's hit 283 this spring with three home runs, uh, 787 OPS uh, in 54 plate appearances, which shows you they're playing him a lot. Um, Reyes has already been sent to minor league camp. So like I said, he was kind of the kind of the guy we thought would be the placeholder. And now he's already been farmed out. So now we've given Colas a playing time bump by another 10%. I think he's up to 60 or 70% playing time. And he projects as sort of the third outfielder with Robert Benintendi, um, unless they turn to Gavin Sheets out there. Uh, but Sheets has been playing a lot of first base this spring. It doesn't seem like they're about to move him back to the outfield because they're not working him much there. He's also not hitting much this spring either. He's got a 581 OPS. So, He's not exactly mounting a spirited campaign to keep Colas uh, out, out, of, out of the lineup, right? <laughs> yeah, to say the least. <laughs> um, th- that said, Colas is not in the 40-man roster, uh, so there may be some roster shenanigans going on here that could cost him a couple of weeks in the minors or longer if they're really worried about that strikeout rate. Um, but the projection is interesting now that it's up to uh, – 450 plate appearances or so we project 25 home runs with a 200 with a 253 batting average um batting you know maybe seventh or something like that in that white Sox lineup um he is going back to our offseason prospect reports um our organizational reports he's 24 years old he was we did rate him as the number two white Sox prospect with an 8c rating which is a you know good chance of being an everyday regular um so worth watching here to see what the White Sox are going to do. They, if they're not, if they're not going to bring him North with them, they have not done anything to 
sort of give themselves a reasonable alternative. So you can, you can read the tea leaves in such a way that, you know, they really think they're going with, with Colas because we're not seeing anything resembling a plan B that you'd be happy about. One of the key columns at BaseballHQ.com, especially during spring, is the Big Hurt. It's our injury analysis column, and analyst Matt Cederholm uh, runs through a dozen or so of the injuries in his most recent column. Uh, one of the sobering reports he had was about Philadelphia super prospect right-hander Andrew Painter, who was being drafted uh, pretty much everywhere and pretty high in some drafts as well. But then we got news that He's had a sprain of his ulnar collateral ligament. That's the Tommy John ligament. Uh, what did Matt report about the Andrew Painter injury situation? I had a chuckle when I read this from him because having seen Matt in person at First Pitch Florida where he did a, an injury panel and that was roughly the weekend that Painter got hurt where the, the diagnosis came out. And then again, uh, in First Pitch Online a couple of weeks ago, Matt did a uh, injury roundup. So he makes this point so often, not just about Painter, uh, but the point is that a sprain is a tear, right? It's a, it's a tear of some of the ligament fibers. And I, I said to Matt at one point um, over ch- chat or email, I said, you know, a sprain is a tear really should become your email signature at this point because, it's, uh, you know, he, he has to make the point so often. But jokes aside, it is a very important point, right? This is serious and it's not a sprained UCL is not in any way a he dodged a bullet situation for Painter. Um, I mean, sure, it's good news that he's not undergoing Tommy John surgery now, but it's by no means a just rest it for a couple of months and everything will be fine either. Uh, we're good, you know, there's more TBD here. We're gonna have to watch this space. Um, in particular, the extent of the tearing and the location on the ligament, I guess, are pretty important. And, you know, I haven't actually read the MRI. And even if I had, I wouldn't know what I was looking at. So that's probably not going to be helpful information for me. Um, but, um, you know, Matt reading the tea leaves, you know, says that, as I said earlier, the good news is they haven't scheduled the surgery already. So they think there's at least some chance that they can uh, they can manage this situation and not have to do that. Um and I guess the tear is toward the end of the UCL. What's the word? Is it the proximal or anterior? I think it's proximal. Proximal, um, yep. Proximal. And that has a, um, those have a better chance of healing without surgery, I guess, than one that's like out in the middle of the ligament, like furthest away from both endpoints, right? Um, that said, you know, it's a slow injury to heal. Um, and obviously, given the prospect pedigree here, the Phillies are going to give Painter every chance to heal. So um, I would not only is it going to be a few months before we even see him start to ramp back up, but there will be a number of hurdles he's got to clear um, before anybody gets any confidence that um, he actually can avoid surgery. And Matt said that if there is surgery, it's likelier not to be Tommy John and instead to be this internal brace procedure. I think Trevor Story had that earlier this year, but it takes a lot less time to heal because they basically just shore things up in there instead of a complete ligament transplant and, and all the recovery and and rehab that's attendant on that is reduced. Not not two weeks, it's still months, but it's uh, it's a much less invasive, much less problematic procedure. Uh, best of luck to Andrew Painter, but I just don't think he's draftable at this point. I think that's right. I mean, if you got 
uh, you know, I think the absolute best case scenario is they shut him down for a couple of months. They bring him back very slowly in the minors on a rehab assignment. And, you know, if he checks every box, makes every milestone, could he make it to Philadelphia by like July or August? I mean, that seems like the best case scenario to me with a lot that can go wrong between now and then. So if you're drafting for this year, I agree with you. I don't think there's uh, much upside there at all. Um, in terms of the brace procedure, I'm trying to remember. I think this is completely off the top of my my head, so it might be wrong, but I think Kenta Maeda had that surgery too. Um, and he was, you know, he did miss all of last season, but he had that surgery after 2021. Uh, the difference being he was ready to return to the Twins late last season, like in August and September. He was already, he went through a full rehab. He was pitching in minor league games. He just kind of ran out of time and or um, if the Twins had gotten further in the playoffs, he might have popped up in their bullpen. They were considering adding him to the roster. So that was, uh, you know, 10-month return time for a pitcher, which is uh, a, a little bit more than we're expecting from, say, Trevor Story. But obviously the rehab and the, the strain on the elbow for a pitcher is different than a uh, middle infielder. Uh, the Maeda surgery was Tommy John and an internal brace surgery, which they thought would uh, be a new technique that they could use to speed oh, really? up the recovery. Yeah, he, he did have the replacement, but they also braced it okay. with this internal thing. Uh, you know, talking of uh, Matt Cedarholm, he also writes um, our Market Watch column every year at about this time of uh, preseason, in which he looks at the all value team and the all avoid team. And the, uh, these are really r very interesting columns. I like them a lot. Yeah, these are, uh, you know, between the um, items we were talking about with uh, Mr. Nick Rand earlier uh, and how much I like the like those features at this time of the spring and then the all value and all avoid, you know, we've reached the uh, point in the offseason where we're really kind of playing all the hits. Today is one of the, in particular today, Friday, is one of, one of our top content days on the site all year long and one of my favorites because it's just a uh, it's just a day where even I sit here and just have to sort of marinate in all of the uh, in all of the good information we put out right before. Obviously, it's no accident we're doing that today, right before all the all, all the big, a lot of big drafts this weekend and going into uh, the next ten days or so of draft season. Whenever your draft happens to fall, we're uh, we're kind of putting everything out there and uh, leaving it all on the field, as it were. I liked the all value because I had a lot of these guys this year on my various rosters. Uh, on the pitching side, I thought it was interesting that Tristan McKenzie, Jordan Montgomery, Joe Musgrove, who's hurt, of course, and Joe Ryan, Brady Singer, guys like that made the list. And we should say this is not this is not Matt Cedarholm looking around and just offering his opinion about who makes a good value. This is based on where they're being drafted according to ADP reports and uh, average auction value reports versus what the, the Baseball HQ projections suggest they're going to be worth. And uh, for the all-value report, it's guys who are high, have higher projected worth than projected cost, and the all-avoid team is pretty much the reverse. And it, it's a lot of work, but I think it's pretty interesting because, Ray, when we talk about using ADPs correctly, they're supposed to be kind of a guide to help you figure out not only who you want, but where you want them. And in this instance, the tables that come with the, uh, with the two reports lay out where they're being drafted and why you shouldn't be drafting them there or should be drafting them uh, a little bit ahead because they represent a profit opportunity or a loss threat. 
Exactly. And, you know, certainly one component of that is you want to like the player and the associated skills as well. If there's a player you think is, you know, terrible, then the fact that you can get him at, you know, a couple of bucks or around under his value is less exciting. Right. Uh, but, you know, these guys are, um, you know, they're the guys that Matt highlights in, these, in the all value team are, you know, players who's, who I've been interested in all off season because of the skills and Matt's pointing out that their price is also palatable too. I think Musgrove is a particularly interesting case because my, my sort of sense of how that market went is that um, his ADP plummeted when he dropped that um, weight on his foot and broke his toe. Right. Right. And, but, 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 but then it kind of turned out that that wasn't such a big deal. And the guidance now is like, he might miss a start or two. You know, he's like, he's like, he's like a week behind to start the season, but it's, but it seems like what happened is the ADP dropped when the news first broke and then it didn't really recover when the scope of the injury really came to light. And then it, you know, he got discounted and then the discount didn't get erased. And that's why that discount still sits there. You have to sit through, you know, essentially the first, probably 10 days of the season before you see him, but that's uh, a small price to pay for a, uh, you know, that that's, that's priced into that. That's why you're getting the, the discount, I guess. And it seems like a pretty reasonable bargain to me. Especially since you consider you're not going to be sitting there with an empty roster slot during those one or two starts or 10 days or whatever it ends up being. You are going to get some starts by putting somebody in from your bench or getting somebody off the free agent wire, a carefully chosen, a streamable type of pitcher. And so you, you might be able to have your cake and eat it too in, in that sense. Yes. And the other thing about it is, I was making this point with somebody, it might have been on the uh, first pitch online a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, there's a different situation when you, you, you look at what Musgrove's projection was. It was for, before he dropped the thing on his toe, I think it was for 175 or 180 innings, which is about 30 starts, right? Which leaves enough room in there for this kind of injury. Like, a, you know, a, a minimum D, a minimum IL stint, you know, missed two starts kind of thing. That was, that was already kind of baked into the projection. And as a result, if that's the only injury he has all year, like his projected value doesn't really change at all. It's just that he's kind of taking that two or three start hit right at the start of the season. Um, but it could be different for Musgrove versus somebody like uh, Sandy Alcantara, who's projected for, you know, it was hung up 200 plus innings the last couple of years. And we're projecting him like right up around that level again. If, if Alcantara gets a three or four star boo-boo, then there's just not enough time in the season for him to make back the volume that we were projecting for him. But Musgrove is in a tier where, you know, that was sort of priced in. And as they're in a related note, when you get down to some of those guys we were talking about earlier in that sort of 120 inning tier, like the Grayson Rodriguez or the Kershaw or the Snell or Tyron Glass now is an example of somebody else who lives in that tier who is already injured now. The fact that Glass now is out until May doesn't necessarily shave our projection that much either because we weren't projecting him to be a full-time guy anyway. We were expecting him to get shut down, and it just so happens that the shutdown is happening right now. Another aspect of the all-value team that Matt points out is that it's not just an exercise in amassing an all-value team. After he gets the team put together, he notes that 
you're getting 320 units of production for 233 units of spending, and you're not locked into that because then you can take four or five of the weakest players or the ones you like the least or the highest injury risk or whatever and spend the 27 unspent dollars to upgrade at certain positions. The example he gives, I think, is um, Dalton Varsho taking the place of one of Cal Raleigh or, or Sean Murphy, both of whom are fine catchers, but Varsho's clearly a, a better fantasy prospect in that instance. Mm-hmm. And so instead of spending, you know, $7 on Cal Raleigh, you can upgrade to... 12 or 15 or whatever it costs you to get to Dalton Varsho. And again, kind of have your cake and eat it too. Exactly. And he does all of these calculations based exclusively on value. So there's no concept of category balance or anything like that. So that's one of the reasons you might want to swap out for an upgrade like Varsho is to, you know, pick up some stolen bases. If you're, you know, if you run the five category projections for these guys and see that, um, you know, this team, this team as constituted comes in light on speed, or you might want to tweak the, you know, hitting pitching mix in the budget there. Um, it might be that you think that all six of the starters who um, cost, I'm doing the math in my head, but the, the staff overall cost uh, $84. And it might be that you might want to decide that uh, maybe you think you can, you want to build the monster offense and, you know, push that down to 65 or 70 and drop one of these starters. Maybe you want to go the other way. And instead of the, you know, closer and waiting bullpen of Hector Neris, Jason Adam and Paul Seawald that he, uh, that made the all value team here. Maybe you want to drop one of those guys and pay up for, you know, an actual uh, guy who's starting the year in the ninth inning role. There's enough flexibility to do that. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, so it's a great framework in that sense, but it's intended to be a starting point for you to, uh, you know, f- sort of further refine it to your preferences and your league structure. Yeah. And you can just go down the list on the all value team or on the all avoid team. And you might say, I just don't agree. I think that, uh, totally. this guy is not valuable or this guy is in fact more valuable than we're giving him credit for. And on the all avoid side, the, the name that jumped off the page at me was Jordan Walker in St. Louis, who was really soaring up the, uh, Soaring up the uh, the uh, ADPs and the drafts I was in while he was having that tremendous spring, and then it started tailing off, and he started tailing off. But I think he's still being drafted pretty aggressively while people try to kind of wait out and see what's going to happen in St. Louis. But seeing that written down on a, on the page like that by a guy who's obviously thought about this stuff kind of gives you a reason if you were thinking about maybe not drafting Jordan Walker, it gives you a little bit of an evidence point or a proof point that that might not be a bad idea. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's a prime example of, you know, what the March hype machine does every year. And, uh, I tend not to be one who's drawn to those particular, uh, traps on the draft board. And, you know, I think putting the all value and all avoid right next to each other are a great way to sort of break yourself of that. Even if you're prone to it, you can sit there and say that, you know, for the $14 of uh, market value that uh, Walker is you know being priced at, we have him projected for minus five, but you can sit there and, you know, go buy uh, Alec Baum instead toggling back to the, 
um, all value team at third base and see that the profit you make there and be like, well, you know, I'll let everybody else go chase Jordan Walker for, you know, double digit price or you know, round 10 or 12 in my draft, whatever it is. And then I'll wait, I'll, I'll collect something else in round 10 or 12. And then I'll come back a little later and grab Alec Baum. And, you know, I like my chances of not just winning the combination of those of those two picks, but actually bomb out producing Walker on his own. Ray, uh, before we go, I would be remiss not to ask you about one of your annual special projects at baseballhq.com, the straight draft guide. Gosh, it's been going on, uh, I think ever since I joined baseball HQ back in the, uh, sort of Mel Ott days, but, uh, how long have you been doing the guide? This is my 19th year with the straight draft guide and uh, a guy by the name of Jeff Howard wrote the first several of them uh, before I took it over. So uh, it's been 19 for me, but somewhere on the order of uh, probably 24 or 25 altogether. I remember Jeff Howard, boy, he was a really good straight draft player. He really was. Yeah. He kind of, uh, he wrote the mold here and I, you know, am still, you know, applying a lot of the same principles all these years later. I don't see his name popping up whenever we look at the leaderboards at NFBC or any of the uh, experts leagues. Is he still doing fantasy baseball? Do you know? I don't. I've I've completely lost track of him. Oh well, it's too bad because he was a really uh, he was a really sharp guy. In the article you wrote accompanying the release of this year's guide, you talk about you call them tent poles of straight draft strategy. What are some of those tent poles? Yeah, it's really, you know, I, I sort of frame it as, you know, these are some questions that you want to ruminate on, you know, some possible paths you can take through the draft board and how you answer the questions kind of go a long way to sort of filling in the gaps and figuring out what your draft plan is going to be. It could be anything from how are you attacking closers? Do you want one of the top six or eight closers? Or are you willing to, you know, either wait till the middle tier of the closer pool or just collect closers and waiting or, you know, similarly, how do you want to approach speed? And some of that in a straight draft has to do with where you fall in the first round, you know, the first, certainly six, maybe eight picks generally come with, uh, some 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 degree of five category contribution so you get sort of a speed foundation there but if you end up sort of in the second half of the first round uh you might end up looking at some bats that are more the four category producers and therefore uh if you don't have a plan to address speed early you can end up at a speed deficit and then similarly how are you going to handle starting pitching do you want two aces do you want one ace is there a pocket of pitching later on that you really like and you're willing to wait and collect a couple of guys from lower tiers, you know, questions like that. If you can, you know, we, we would all prefer to have 10 picks in the first five rounds. Right. But that's kind of definitionally not how the straight draft works. So, it, you know, really what I'm trying to get at is what are the, what are the trade-offs you're willing to make? What are the things you do want to prioritize in those with those early picks and what things do you either accept that you're deprioritizing or have a better feel for how you would handle them later. And you answer those questions and kind of your draft plan unfolds from there. I thought it was interesting too, that you offered two or three scenarios later on in the article, just to 
lay out examples of how you might want to think about this and not just think about each thing separately, but how it, it all works together and combines into a, into a cohesive strategy for the entire draft based on some of the presumptions that you're making. Uh, you make an important point about the interchangeability of draft positions of players. We've talked about this before on this podcast, on uh, this podcast with other guests, but it's a really important thing to think about. What did you say about the uh, interchangeability of how the players are positioned in the draft grid? Yeah, it gets to be a these these things all kind of wind together, right? Um, decisions are all not made in a vacuum, and as you try to piece these things together, what you want to avoid is a situation where either you find yourself in round nine or something, and there are either two or three things you really wanted to grab at this point that are critical to your draft plan, or there's really nothing you wanted here, right? These are, these are both sort of bad options. Um, so like I was talking about like the closers a couple of minutes ago and you could choose to chase, you know, it would have been Edwin Diaz, but now it's class a or Jordan Romano or whatever up early on, or maybe you don't want to pay that premium price and you're willing to sit here and say, around uh, around round eight or nine i am comfortable with clay holmes or david bednar and that's fine except if you're also saying i don't think i want i i need to reach for a top starting pitcher in round two or round three i really like zach Allen or logan webb or blake snell or insert eight other pitchers here in that same round eight, nine, 10 range, that's fine. You can make those decisions. And I, I actually do really, that's a concrete example. I actually do really like that, um, that sort of round eight, nine, 10 pitching group this year. I, th- I think there's a lot of places I like to get starting pitching there. Um, but the problem is, like I said, if you target the closers down there and you target the starting pitchers down there and, oh, by the way, I really like, Alec Baum, someone we just talked about, you know, who goes sort of in that same range. Now you're not going to get all of those things. So make those decisions, you know, those mid mid tier decisions kind of force you back up to the top of the draft and say, well, I can't get all of those things in round eight, nine, 10. So, you know, maybe I will take Jordan Romano up here and not get a, a starting pitcher in a top five, but I'll get four, hitters and Jordan Romano and I'll start off with a big offense and I'll have the saves sort of covered for a little while and that'll leave me the flexibility to sit there and just cherry pick that Logan Webb, um, Kyle Wright, Blake Snell, Kershaw, Grayson Rodriguez if you want to, you know, whoever whoever your favorite pitchers are in that next tier down because you've sort of cleared the decks to allow you to do that without trying to fulfill two or three different priorities at once down there. I also thought it was interesting that you pointed out that the players themselves, if they're fairly closely grouped in the uh, draft grid, are essentially fungible. One can be replaced by the other. And the example you used was it's not a lot of, there's not a lot of sense in ruminating too extensively of over Pete Alonso versus Vladimir Guerrero Jr. They're both really good first basemen. You don't have to sweat, oh, I'm going to lose this guy. I'll be, I'll be lost without him because, you know, there's another guy not far behind and you can probably, um, 
make do with the, your second choice as long as they're fairly close together. And as the draft goes on, those levels or those slots start to become increasingly abstract almost. That if you're in the 11th round and you need a guy and the best guy available is in the 13th, maybe it's not so horrible to just reach down and get the guy you really need because he might not be there, A, if somebody else has the same idea as you, and B, you're not really losing that much value choosing a 13th round guy over an 11th round guy because by that point they're all getting very, very close in value and the the, the drop-off position by position is pretty small. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's if anything, this is more of a trap for a straight drafter than it is for somebody in an auction, right? Or maybe this is that maybe I'm just reflecting my own bias. But in an auction, you go in with auction values in front of you and you'll see that you know it, the point you're making is easier to absorb and accept if you're comparing uh well, I've got this guy for $13 and I've got this guy for $12. Sure, I'd pr- you know, I prefer the $13 player, but I'm not going to be heartbroken if I, you know, if I if the $12 guy comes out first in the bidding and I end up getting him or if I can get him for 11 or 10 and I'm just leaving the opportunity to get the $13 guy on the table, that's fine. You know, that's sort of, you know, because you're dealing in dollars and because the tiers you know, far the way they do, you don't need a lot of convincing to be told that the $12 guy and the $13 guy are essentially the same player, right? But in a straight draft ranking, if you don't have the dollar values in front of you, all you have is a ranking and says, I have this guy at 102 and this guy at 114 in my rankings. That starts to feel like it's a real difference just from the ordinal neighbor nature of the numbers, right? right? Yeah. But but in fact, it's not because right. if, because there's still an eleven and a thirteen dollar player, whatever it is, you know that that gap in the rankings, you know, either the numeric ranking or just literally the space on your piece of paper between the two names with a dozen other names in between, it just gives you the sense that that's like a significant difference. And the fact is, it's not. Yeah, and I think it helps if you if you stack them horizontally rather than vertically because then it, it all of a sudden does start to look like it's not that big of a drop from the middle of the 11th round to the middle of the 12th round. It's only two squares, and it maybe gets your mind set uh, more accurately on what the values are, especially, like you said, uh, when you're in that range, if you did have the uh, auction values in front of you that were attached to the straight draft um players, you'd probably see that uh, the most expensive player of the ones you're considering is a $13 player. And the guy at the bottom of that is probably $12.50. If you're going out, you know, Larry Schechter style all the way out to two places of decimal, it really isn't a huge value drop at any point until you, I think you get down to like the 18th or 19th round, then you start getting into those dollar, $2 end game type players. But uh, really you have an, a lot more flexibility in those middle rounds than you might think you do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Before we go on to our little uh, novelty thing that we're going to do at the end here, Ray, explain to everybody what's in the straight draft package. So I do a couple of things. I, I Really, it's... Uh, you know, it's one article on the site that I refresh kind of throughout the month, month of March, but it has sort of, the article kind of has three components. The The first component is straight draft rankings, which um, I work with Matt Cedarholm to produce, and they're just output from the custom draft guide uh, updated every week with some adjustment for straight drafts, you know, some 
consideration of positional scarcity, particularly with catchers and some adjustments for player reliability. So it's not just straight dollar values, but it's based in dollar values. It's probably the rankings are probably 80 to 90% ordered by dollar values with a little bit of uh, sort of special sauce thrown in on top of it. The second of the three components is the article. And we just talked about, um, you know, kind of some of the things I hit in the article, Uh, you know, some years I call it a, um, you know, review of the state of play or a, you know, a theme statement or a, you know, a mood statement, something like that. Just sort of my sense of, this particular year's marketplace for straight drafters. And then the third piece is kind of an index of all of the big thing, all the big articles on the site, all the big features on the site that I think if this is the one article you look at to get ready for your draft, it's got, by the time I'm done, it'll have probably 50 links out to other articles on it. Um, It goes through the Market Pulse series that you were, uh, that we were talking about earlier. It goes through some of Stephen Nickrand's big, big articles from the spring it covers the bullpen buyers guides um i actually have to go in and update that today and add some of the content we were just talking about but it's really hey if you take this article take these rankings and you know review as many of the linked out articles that represent some of the key pieces of our work from this entire off season you're ready to draft that's where i'm trying to get you and uh, there are draft listings for the various 15-team, 12-team, th- those kinds of uh, differences? Yes, there's a uh, – you know, so one of, the, one of the beauties of the straight draft is number of teams doesn't exactly matter, right? Because right. we're not generating dollar values. It's just a ranked list, and you can – you know, if you take the mixed league draft list that we have linked there, you know, to a 12-team draft, to versus a 15 team draft all that's going to happen is you're not going to go quite far and stand on the list at the end um, but the, the rest of it or you know, so order, you hope <laughs> or so you hope yeah. but the order but the order doesn't change is, is my point so right, yes right. there's a there's a mixed league ranking an al only ranking and an nl only ranking yeah al and nl only i saves you the trouble of scratching out the guys who aren't in the league that you're drafting. Uh, okay. So we mentioned that you've been doing this since, uh, 2005, 19 years and counting. And, uh, I went back and I looked at some of the, uh, comments you made in the 2005 straight draft guide article. And uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions, uh, see what you see if what you remember about it or what you can figure out based on what was going on in 2005. Uh, to the extent that you remember it at all, because I certainly don't. Uh, but uh, in your discussion of round one options, which batter did you cite as worthy of a top pick and note that his stolen bases should shape the rest of your draft? Oh, my goodness. Um, my memory is not what it used to be. Is the, And I did, and I did my answers here will prove that I did not cheat, I think. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to guess this is Jose Reyes. Oh. No, it was Carl Crawford who uh, did come up with 46 stolen bases in 2005 uh, at the end of the season. The leader of the year was Sean Figgins, who had uh, 61 or 62, something like that. So in round two, you said, focus on a middle infielder if you didn't get one in round one. And you have three middle infielders to choose from. Nomar Garciaparra is one. Derek Jeter is another. Who's the third? Well, it can't be A-Rod. He would have been in the first round, right? right. Um, let's see... Is it Jose Reyes again? <laughs> <laughs> no, Edgar Renteria. Oh, sure. 
And uh, I wonder if Jose Reyes probably would have been a first rounder back in those days. Yeah, no, five category kind of guy. The problem here is you're you're quizzing me on former Red, Red Sox who I have excised from my memory, <laughs> namely Carl Crawford and Edgar Renteria. As far as I'm concerned, neither one of them exists anymore. <laughs> That's right. Renteria, 276 batting average, eight home runs, nine stolen bases, and 70 RBIs in 2005. So a pretty good player. Uh, Two new positions come into play around four, you said, specifically second base and catcher. You mentioned three top catchers, two of them being Victor Martinez and Ivan Rodriguez. Who's your third top catcher? Oh, I'm names on the tip of my tongue, but I'm not coming to it, coming to it. It's one of those like catchers who like barely was a catcher by name only, but actually hits a lot. (laughs) No, this guy was a catcher. Uh, I'll give you a hint. He was in Atlanta. Oh. Um, a real catcher yeah, in Atlanta in 2005. Why am I blanking? I got no, I have no idea. Okay. It was Javi Lopez. Oh, of course. Sure. That's a real catcher. Makes sense. A real catcher. Yeah. And a pretty good player. He's hit 275 with 15 homers and sort of 50, 50 runs in RBIs. You also mentioned three non Adolfo Soriano second baseman, Brian Giles, Juan Uribe, and whom? Who's the third second baseman? No idea. This is very unexciting. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it was Jeff Kent who actually had a oh, really sure. good year, 289 with 29 homers, 100 plus runs and 100 plus RBIs, and even threw in six stolen bases. So he was probably really good value in round four or five. Uh, that was obviously not the year he fell off his motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, or any of the other troubles that kind of plagued him. And finally, what was your advice as to what players or slots, I guess, the wise drafter would have filled after 10 rounds? Oh, this was always uh, back in the days of more position scarcity. This was always, uh, the advice was always to cover all of your infields, you know, first, second, short, third, catcher, um one outfielder, a starting pitcher, and a closer. Right. And uh, it says all uh, corner infielders and middle infielders, so presumably you want your actual corner infield and middle infield slot to be filled because that's how you get oh, to yeah. the 10. That's even that's even more extreme, right? Yeah, it is a pretty, uh, uh, it's a pretty interesting way of looking at it. it w- what is it now? It, it's very much not that way. And, you know, you could do a study on roster construction 20, from 20 years ago, and I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the fact that there's just fewer hitters in the pool now because these teams all carry so many more pitchers. You know, you you know, 20 years ago we were still on like 10 man pitching staffs, not you know some 14, days yeah. sometimes it's 14, right? Yeah. Uh, but roster, but rosters haven't changed. So there were there are so many fewer batters now that um, you know, first of all, there is really no difference outside of catcher in the depth of the positions, but outfield was you know comparatively so deep back then because so many of the extra guys on rosters were platoon fourth outfielders and that sort of thing that you could sit there and find quality outfielders in the end game of your draft. And that's no longer the case. So, you know, in this year's straight draft guide, like I don't even think I use the words position scarcity. Like it's just not a factor. That's been an interesting thing over the years, how it has evolved in our thinking. I mean, position scarcity still exists, but how to deal with it has uh, evolved over time, I think, for the better. And certainly it has inspired, I think, people to think about their roster builds in a more uh, coherent way. It's just not, I've got to get a catcher, I've got to get a catcher. It's, if I get a catcher here, 
What am I going to do there? When am I going to get the other catcher? Is there an advantage to me to take two top catchers and put the squeeze on everybody else? All of those kind of game theory sort of uh, ideas that people are applying to their roster builds. And uh, of course, this game gets better and harder and more complicated the longer we go on because more people are thinking about it like you, Ray. And uh, boy, it's a terrific resource. The Straight Draft Guide must read information. Thanks for doing it. And thanks for appearing on the show today. And we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, PD. Always a pleasure. Next week, we'll talk. There'll be actual games going on. That's right. Uh, Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and writer at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number eight of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday News and Notes edition, Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and a fine analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ray is always a great hang and full of great insights about baseball and fantasy baseball. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Google Pods, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. Good reviews help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let me know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with another Tuesday Tout edition, and then again next Friday with another News and Notes edition. Once the season starts, we'll be going to pods once a week with our Friday full editions combining news and our expert interviews. In the meantime, though, it's our expert interview coming up Tuesday, news and notes on Friday, on the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Tuesday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.